Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to episode 75 of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. Richard Lummis is on assignment this week, so I have interviewed Andy Simon. Andy is the author of On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights. She is a corporate anthropologist and award-winning author and a trained practitioner in the Blue Ocean Strategy. She has her own consulting company, Simon & Associates, and she helps companies use the tools of anthropology to better adapt to changing times. On her recent book, she laid out a very interesting six-step protocol to change corporate culture that I thought would be an excellent uh, discussion for today's podcast. I'm going to link to uh, Andy, the book, and her site in the show notes. I hope you will enjoy the interview and episode. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. Today, you are in for a real treat because I have Andy Simon with me. Andy has been doing leadership culture uh, consulting for many years. I won't say how long. She's got Simon Associates, but she has recently released an incredibly uh, prescient and uh, timely book entitled On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take your business to new heights. And within that, she has a protocol of steps to how to change corporate culture. And given the plethora of corporate scandals, and you can name anyone you want over the past few years, I've certainly found them to be problems around culture. So Andy, with that very long-winded introduction, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. What fun and what a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you start off by telling us what's the work of Simon Associates and how long you've been doing it? Of course. I'm a corporate anthropologist, and I launched my business after 9-11. Before that, I was an executive in banks for 15 years and an executive in healthcare organizations, and I spent a decade as an academic anthropologist and got my tenure. And I was a visiting professor at Washington University in St. Louis teaching entrepreneurship. But my expertise and experience was in helping organizations change. And when I decided to found uh, Simon Associates, it was to bring the methods, tools, and theory of anthropology into a business setting. Um, When I launched it as a corporate anthropologist, I will tell you, I don't think five people Googled me a month. It was one of those blue oceans of unmet needs, but I clearly believe that the approach could help people see things with fresh eyes. And when times are changing and they have to change, people, quite frankly, don't know what to do and how how to do it. And that's the way in which we've applied this method to help them learn how and then to actually achieve it. So that's our approach. So can I now turn to your book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights. Could you describe, uh, number one, why you wrote it uh, a little bit, and then what's the book about, and uh, what were you trying to communicate? Sure. Well, as we work with clients, we did a variety of things. Uh, If you're going to help them see things with fresh eyes, we often had to take them out exploring, uh, as an anthropologist might. And uh, it was interesting because they would have aha moments 
I said, how do you capture those and share them with others so they can begin to understand why some observational research might be helpful? Often we're blue ocean strategists and we were helping them see new strategies for unmet needs and, and how would they open new market space? And uh, we had a bunch of clients successfully do that. And then we were working with them on how to change their marketing to create demand as opposed to simply fulfill it. And, and each of the stories had their own personality to them. Um, you're a process person. We're very process oriented. But part of the discovery part is how to take people out of their comfort and make them take a look at their organization as if I have dropped them on an island of Samoa. And now they have to really understand the rituals of a foreign country in new ways. So while it was very exciting, it was hard to tell people what did we really do. So we pulled seven case studies, actually eight, uh, together about clients who were kind enough to share their experiences. And each of them is a different kind of company, all of which were on the brink. They could either go and fall or they could soar. And so the stories about how a little anthropology helped them see things with fresh eyes, it was often right around them. You know, we often say the way forward is all around you. You just can't see it yet. And, and so it was exciting to share that and begin to show people how anthropology could, in fact, help businesses do things that they were often stuck or stalled and unable to do on their own. It's each of the chapters has a how to at the end. And so we try and use each of those stories. So I'll give you a couple of stories so your listeners can understand it in, in a more concrete way. One of my favorite is of a gentleman, Jim Riley, who loves us to share his story. He made chain for snow tires and his market had been saturated. An old company, they actually put those chain on covered wagons leaving St. Louis to go out west. So it'd been around a long time. And we had him sit on the telephone to listen to inbound calls at his service center. And he listened to her for two hours and that's why I find it so interesting because this is not that hard. And in two hours, all she kept saying was, uh, no, I'm sorry, we don't do that. No, sorry, we don't do that. And finally, he said to her, all you keep saying is we don't do that. And she said, well, you told me we don't do that. And he said, but why don't we do that? She said, I don't know why we don't do that, but that's what you said we don't do. That we don't do stuff turned into a 40% growth in his business. And every time I meet with him to continue either to work or just to, to converse about it, that part of his business he did then now represents 25% of his business. And the other 75% are all those things we don't do that now have become a core part of his very innovative and expanding business. And so Jim always likes to share that it wasn't what we did. It's how we changed the way he saw things. There's another great story in there. We do a lot of healthcare work, which is extremely important today uh, because the cultures of merged organizations often can get uh, very, en very encumbering and people can't quite figure out how to change. Uh, but this particular hospital system came to us and they wanted to become much more of a collaborative and innovative place. And we used one of the tools, the Organizational Cultural Assessment Instrument, and they all agreed they wanted to be more collaborative innovative and less controlled. They had nine unions. Uh, the idea of how to become more innovative and collaborative when the CEO signed every check was one of those things that we were challenged by. But the story, as we outline it in the book, is to help others who realize that you can begin to change. But typically, 
Uh, it's very difficult to visualize what that actually means. Does empowering a nurse to take care at the bedside and make changes that a doctor ordered, is that innovative? Are you going to allow the nurses to actually be empowered and take risks like that? Um, is collaboration, the housekeepers and the nurses are going to better coordinate care so that they can turn the beds more quickly? You know, what do the words really mean? And when you come down to culture and culture change, which is, you know, a major topic of both the book and our conversation, uh, what does it mean? What am I going to give up and do less of? What will I do more of? And so the process begins to enable people to change. And, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but your listeners should know that the brain hates it, hates to change. It hates me sometimes. Um, and usually we tell people, if you want to change, have a crisis or create one. If not, it's very difficult to get the habits to stop controlling your day and instead allow some new things to begin to happen. So the process of transformation is not easy, but can be done. And, and my last one in, the, in my book that I always love to share was of a rather young company in the pharmaceutical industry, and nobody was buying their services. And we went out and we, we did, you know, exploring with all of their potential clients who said, we really don't understand what it is they do. And so we created a, a seminar system that every Wednesday they would educate. And they had big guys, Sanofi and Johnson & Johnson and Amgen, all listening to and watching their seminars. And the business started to come through, but there was a gap between what they thought the customers needed and what, in fact, the customers thought they could buy from them. So all of the case studies are of clients of ours that could be like the folks listening to your, your podcast who may be stalled or stuck or on the brink of trying to figure out how to respond to these fast-changing times and not quite sure how to change to adapt to them. Um, we're working with one client who gave us a group of millennials and said, teach them to talk to their clients. This is in a professional service, white-collar world, uh, and the millennials know how to text really well. Uh, but not how to talk either on the phone or in person. So part of this is now retooling them with a process for beginning to get them comfortable to see themselves with new eyes. So as an anthropologist, most of the time we're trying to get people to stop for a moment and look at what they're doing as if they were observers of it, not in the midst of it. And when they have an aha moment, I can only you, Tom, as you probably know, they have an amazing brain that goes whoosh, and then it's easier to steer. So I hope that educates you and, and your audience a little bit about both on the brink and, and the kinds of work that we do. So I'd now like to turn to uh, your, uh, what I would call your protocol, but you've got how to change corporate culture in six steps. Could you go through each one of those steps for us? Absolutely. And you guide me on the detail you need because uh, we're sort of giving you a how-to um, in a half hour, and I, uh, I'm delighted to. Uh, but, you know, we'll pace ourselves so that it's, it's doable for your listeners. Um, the first thing, uh, and, and this is an, a very simple, wonderful tool developed by the University of Michigan, Dr. Kim Cameron and Robert Quinn, and it's run by an organization in the Netherlands that I'm affiliated with. And, and the, the, the survey is called the Organizational Cultural Assessment Instrument, the OCAI-online.com. But you can Google OCAI and it should come up. Now, what they did to develop this methodology was serious research on different kinds of cultures and corporations, organizations. 
I'll tell you, there's some anthropologists who have conniptions when you use it because there can't be simply four different ones. Well, the research was pretty compelling and there are 10,000 companies who have used it and it is extremely powerful when it's being done and we're doing it with a, a client. When you take it, it'll ask you to evaluate in six key areas. You know, what are the dominant characteristics? Is this a very personal place? Are you very dynamic and entrepreneurial? Is it results oriented? Is it controlled and structured? The four dominant kinds of culture are either a controlling one, a collaborative clan one, very full of teamwork, focus on people, a very creative one, very entrepreneurial, very visionary, empowering, and a very competitive one with a lot of bottom line results or rules to follow. Now, when you take this survey, you're gonna be asked to take 100 points and, and balance it and see how you would like it to be today and how you would like it to be in the future. The six areas it is asking you about, what are the dominant characteristics? When I tell you that HR folks call us and say, I wanna change our culture, and I say, what is it now? And there's a pause, then there's really, I'll talk about this in a moment, but people aren't really sure what it is. But the four major types begin to put things together in a way we can make sense out of. The second question is around organizational leaders. Are they mentoring and facilitating or nurturing? Or are they extremely entrepreneurship-ish and innovating, visionaries? Are they aggressive or results-oriented? Or are they coordinators, organizing, smooth running and efficient? I once gave a talk to family firms and only the bankers were very controlling and the family firms were all very clannish and collaborative, almost to the point of not getting anything done. And occasionally there were some entrepreneurs. But it's interesting because as you start to take people through it, they begin to see themselves in a, a framework that's beyond simply, um, I do it this way, or we get along a lot, or, you know, the CEO signs every check, or, you know, the visionary has an idea moment. When I taught entrepreneurship, they often have more ideas than they know what to do with and they tend to need a controlling person to balance it. Then the management of the employees, what does that mean? Is it teamwork and consensus, or are we very free and unique? Everyone's doing their own thing. There's a great article we just got published about a company that my husband built, and they really were very entrepreneurial, but they grew so fast they had to become more process-oriented, and the changes were really quite fantastic, but difficult. And then they could be very having very competitive high demands and for achievement, or there's very conforming, predictable, stable relationships, places where everything is very stated, controlled, and the rules rule. Now, once you begin to understand how we're managing the employees, then we are talking about what's the glue. And as you can hear me describing this, when you're really looking at the values here, you're beginning to understand that there are different ways of getting the same things done. But the glue is loyalty and trust. Is that that's commitment to the organization holding it together? Or are you going to be cutting edge? Different values, different conversations going on. Maybe you're very aggressive and winning. I had um, a, a trading company that was an algorithm trader and they were extremely successful, very competitive, very results oriented and didn't get along very well. 
The glue that held another one is very smooth, running, efficient. We worked with a company in Mexico that had a wonderful cement manufacturing company with lots of rules, very efficient, and they couldn't hire any young people because nobody wanted to work in the silos that they had. And the strategic emphasis is real important. Is it about human development? We're all going to grow here. Are we going to try new things? Are we going to have stretch targets and win in the marketplace, being the leading or the bleeding edge? And are smooth operations really what makes us so successful? I was a banker for 15 years during times of change. We were taking smooth running organizations and turning them into sales and service organizations. I can only tell you that very different emphasis, both for strategy, glue, management. And then the last thing is, how do we define success? Is it based upon teamwork and concern for people that we really get along? I work with a family firm with 49 family members. That was truly all they cared about and getting along. And are we going to be a product leader and an innovator? Or maybe our competitive market leadership is going to be key or there's dependable delivery and we get that cement out just on time. When you go through this, it's the OCAI-online.com you will get a graph and the graph will show you how you are today and how you would prefer to be. We wrote an article about this, several of them, but one in Forbes, because we studied 3000 women and 3000 guys. And what was so fascinating to us was that the women wanted more clan and innovation, a little less competition and much less rules. And the guys wanted exactly the same thing. So the tribe, the belonging, the believing that you really had an openness and trust was extremely important. Um, and then being empowered and having a vision of where you were going was as well. Uh, and then getting results, of course, we had to stay vibrant and, and really have a bottom line. And the last one was to be in a controlled environment. Top down was not particularly attractive. Now, once you have that and you have a picture of where you are, where you're going, how do you get there? And so the process is, what does this mean? I see what tomorrow is. What do I prefer? Should I become less controlling and more empowering? How do I do that? Or is everybody in a free-for-all entrepreneurial firm and we need more processes and controls? Or we won't get the results? As you begin to think about this, you begin to need a vision, a visualization of what it could become if in fact you could change. We're working with one client now and it's a consolidation of foundations and they want to bring them together so that they can all do better. And they think they can double or triple the amount of, of money they can bring in if only they worked better together. But the internecine rivalries are so keen that ruling is going to be a driver of trying to pull this together because nobody's voluntarily giving up anything in order to build something that they don't trust would actually deliver better results. So it's quite fascinating. But the real key is to create a visualization, a story of how could you get things done tomorrow to triple what your results could be. And without that visualization, the brain doesn't know how to organize what it's doing so it can do it differently. Remember, the neurosciences are teaching us that we take the data and that data then turns into a story in our brain and we begin to see reality through the eyes or the lens of that story. And we sort all the things going on to just conform to it. Now, if I want to change that story, it becomes a habit. 
And all the habits drive our daily life. Comfortable, efficient. But now you want a new one. So how am I going to change the story so I can begin to see things in a new light? Step four, once we have visualized tomorrow, then we've got to figure out how is it going to feel? What will we do more of or less of? So we have a bunch of tools in the toolkit that allows us to begin to articulate this. If we're going to be more entrepreneurial and results-oriented and a little less controlling of the, of the rules and less clannish and team-building, you know, company that all consensus and never gets anything done isn't terribly useful. But if we're going to do that, um, what will we do more of and less of? Let's articulate that. How will we start and stop things? What is sacred? And I often run a funeral for things that are very respected and important, but we don't ever want to see happen again. I used to work in a healthcare institution and meetings were what we did. Nothing came out of the meeting. Nothing was an agenda for the meeting. Meeting was the way we got together, but not a way to manage. Giving those up was treacherous. People really liked coming together to meet, but not to get any work done or be accountable for it. So you can begin to feel how that would happen. You're laughing. It was very interesting to watch it. It's not the only place I've been. Consensus building took over and results never happened. So now we're beginning to frame this new story. We're beginning to articulate what we'll do more of and less of. And now we're beginning to move on to step five. How do we begin to actually happen? So I don't care whether it's a healthcare organization or a CPA firm or an engineering firm, whatever it is that your listeners are, are, are in, you're going to have to have some small wins. We don't learn to play golf by getting a club and a book and hitting a ball. you got to practice. I know, because it's very hard to be good at golf, and I practice a lot. But once you hit the ball a couple of times really good, you go, ah, this is what it feels like. It's exactly the same when you're changing your culture. I see what I want to be. And so now we have to get some really good small wins going. What will we change tomorrow? How will the, the folks who change the beds in a hospital and the folks who ask them to do it change how they collaborate to get something done differently? Let's create a pilot with a small win that we're going to do for the next 30 days. And every time it's done well, we will measure and celebrate. People love to get hugs, and it's very important to start to create a ritual of celebration. And every time it's not done well, there'll be a mentor or a coach to begin to redirect them. If you're working with um, the particular group of, I'll say, millennials, for example, and they are really working with a different day in their life, like they play ping pong in the middle of the day, and sometimes they take thought walks, but they don't work the way the boomers did, and how are we going to begin to build a culture that respects the new while the boomers are still trying to figure out where their cubicles were and how come we have an open space? So you need to begin to start with small wins. It's as if you're giving them rehearsal time to play on a different stage. And now, remember, culture isn't something you wear to work. It becomes who you are. And so if I'm going to change what you value... Being told what to do is really good, but I'm going to be valued by how innovative I am. What does that mean? Because it changes who I am. I believe and I trust that this is going to happen if I do this. Mm, not tomorrow. 
And what are kinds of behaviors that I've always done, and this is the way we've always done it, are no longer going to be relevant. In a sense, it isn't just abstract, it's who I am. And that's why this isn't so easy. It's really deep. And sometimes you got to change the whole group around so people are building on each other. And then the last step, um, to celebrate and build coaches and mentors to sustain the wins and redirect those who don't work out so well. Uh, humans, remember, data do not exist. and Nothing really exists. Humans create meaning. And they create symbols. And they begin to share them. And that's what a culture is. It's a shared set of beliefs and values that lead to behaviors that are celebrated and are ritualized so that we know what to do when we come to work every day and even when we leave work. So really remember that you have to be careful here. You're challenging the essence of who people are and things that didn't seem important can be very sacred to people when you're taking them away. We were talking, we wrote an article recently and we were talking to some healthcare uh, colleagues and they were telling us how difficult it was after a merger or an acquisition the doctors who were making more money weren't exactly happy about giving up the freedom they used to have in the past. And the money wasn't enough to overcome the irritation of a whole different culture where they couldn't get things done the way they used to and they weren't in control the way they always were. They really didn't like being in control the way they always were. But taking it away made it much more important and sacred than they ever realized beforehand. Staff had the same issues. Money more policies and procedures now. They were more efficient, but it wasn't more fun. And so as you're going through the process, you need to start with a good sense of where you're going. And then remember, people will tell you the words and then they will go back to the habits. They will say they love something new and then abort them before they can get going. And so it's a journey and it doesn't really end. But as you see the progress, oh my, if it really is right, you will know it right away. And if you can get some data to help you demonstrate it, people will begin to believe it. But if you don't see it, you can't believe it. It isn't the other way around because your story is going to guide you. So that's our process, Tom. Does that help? You know, that that really does. And I really appreciate you taking us through that. Uh, and unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. But I was wondering if someone wanted more information on either Simon Associates or the book On the Brink, uh, where would they go? Oh, of course. Um, we have two websites. One is simonassociates.net, and the other is a book website called andysimon.com. And info at andysimon.com can get to us easily. And uh, we'd love to help your listeners, however it might be, even if we just take them through the process again so they can begin to see how it could be relevant for their own organization. You know, uh, Tom, as you and I were preparing, there are so many culture um, really issues today, big ones, whether it's Uber or it's Wells Fargo or it's VW. I mean, I, I, there are too many things going on where the culture is being blamed and people and their culture aren't separate. This is about people who are living in a particular way and how it's all being reinforced and change is not easy. So thanks for letting me share it. So I've been visiting with Andy Simon. Uh, she is a, uh, uh, I think cultural anthropologist, if I use that right, but certainly a corporate anthropologist. And she has correct. recently released a new book, On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Business to New Heights. It's been a fascinating exploration of what you can do to affect culture change, not just 
when the disasters happen and you're under investigation, but uh, during uh, just a regular corporate life cycle. So, Andy, I really want to take uh, thank you for visiting with me, and I greatly look forward to continuing the conversation. I too thank you so much, Tom, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would hope that you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about one of the most unique podcasts on business leadership, where we take current events, movies, fiction, literature, and theoretical underpinnings of leadership to help you become the better business leader that you can be. Once again, thank you for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. 12 O'Clock High is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.